Shalom and welcome to Think Jewish. A Chodesh Tov. Tonight begins Rosh Chodesh. It is Rosh Chodesh Menachem Av. Also, it starts the nine days, uh, the stricter nine days of mourning before Tisha B'Av. And in my weekly email, I sent out a link to Chabad.org on the webpage of the laws that pertain to the nine days. There are certain things you can't do from tonight. We don't eat meat. We don't drink wine other than on Shabbat. And uh, you'll read over there all the laws. So um, tonight, actually, I'll be actually, let me stop for a moment. Before I did this last week, I want to do it again this week. For those who are listening by the recording, before we open the recording, we did for Israel three chapters of Psalms, chapter 20, chapter 113, and chapter 121, and then we all gave charity. I'm asking that anyone who's listening via the internet recording to please pause and do the same for a moment so we can have all three powers of prayer, charity, and Torah study for our brothers and sisters in green in Israel and all the people that are living in Israel in these difficult times of war. With that being said, the title for tonight is Project Redemption. Now, Project Redemption is made up of two things, as we're going to soon talk about, and that is Zion and its prisoners. Okay? So let me just back up for a moment and share. Haftorah. Most Torah portion, most Shabbatot, are known and are called by the name of the Torah portion. For example, Shabbat Bereshit is the Shabbat which we read the Torah portion of Bereshit. Shabbat Noach, Shabbat Pinchas, that's how we refer to it. If you want to tell someone, on this Shabbos I was there, you say, yeah, on Shabbat Pinchas I was there. And we know which Shabbat you mean. There are a couple of Torah Shabbatot that are not known by their Torah portion, but rather by their Haftorah portion. So let me give you a little bit of history of the Haftorah. The earliest mention we have in the Talmud of Haftorah was that Rabbi Elazar ben Aruch actually read the Haftorah. Uh, we also know that by the time Rabbah was around in the time of the Talmud, there was something called Megillah, the Sefer Haftorah. Just like they have the Sefer Torah, they have a scroll which is for the Haftorah. So we know that that existed back then. What is the history the history of the Haftorah. It actually, we're taught that the Haftorah started in the difficult times under Roman persecution when we were forbidden to read the Torah. We just were not allowed to read the Torah. So therefore, our sages instituted that we'll read portions of the Haftorah. What's the difference? The Torah refers to the five books of Moses. The Haftorah comes from the scriptures and the prophets, the prophets and the scriptures. And the way the sages set it up in, in such a way was that, for example, I'm just going to throw out an example. At the end of the book of Shemot, Exodus, we learn about the building of the tabernacle, right? We study about how the Jews under Moses, they build the tabernacle, the Mishkan. So the Haftorah is from the book of Kings, which tells us how King Solomon built the holy temple in Jerusalem. And the reason they did this was because the association in the mind will help the Jewish people through those difficult years where they weren't allowed to read the Torah in shul. They'll think, oh, why are we reading this of Torah? Oh, of course, we're reading this of Torah because the Torah portion would have been. That's the normal history of the Haftorah. There is an exception, and that is that sometimes we will not look for a connection with the Torah portion, but we'll be looking for a connection with that period of time. So if you really get serious, Torah is perfect. The definition of perfect is it fits from all sides. So obviously it also has a connection with the Torah portion. But the more, the more obvious connection is for the time of the year. So on Rosh Chodesh, we're going to read a different half Torah. Uh, on a holiday, we're going to read a different half Torah. On Hanukkah, we're going to read the stories of the vision of the menorah, so forth and so on. This time of year is actually exactly that. These three weeks from the fast day that we had, the 17th of Tammuz, when they breached the walls of Jerusalem until Tisha B'Av, 
when they put the holy temple on fire, those three Haftorot are specifically for the time of the year, more than it is for the Torah portion that we're reading. So we have Jeremiah warning us of the upcoming destruction. So then last week, which is this Shabbat, is going to be the Shabbat before the uh, Tisha B'Av fast, we read from Isaiah, not from Jeremiah. And that's why the Torah poet, this Shabbat, is actually not known that much as Shabbat Devarim, as most people will refer to it as Shabbat Chazon. Why is it called Shabbat Chazon? Because the first word of the Torah is the opening of the book of Isaiah, which says, Chazon Yeshayahu, Isaiah had a vision. And for example, the week after this week, for example, is also not called by the Torah portion. We're not going to call it Shabbat Ve'et Hanan. Most people know it as Shabbat Nachamu because the Haftorah begins the second period of time where after destruction we have seven Haftorot in a row where God is comforting us even though the temple was destroyed and we're brought into exile. So the Haftorah of this week is Chazon Yeshayahu and this focus on the Haftorah is really what we're doing here today. So what is the most famous verse of this week's Haftorah? It's actually not the opening verse. The opening word is famous because we call Shabbat Chazon, the vision. But that's not the most famous verse. Probably most people, they know the most famous verse of this week's Haftorah as the famous verse of Tzion b'mishpat tipadeh v'shaver b'tztaka. Which means Zion Bimishpat through justice will be redeemed and its prisoners through tzedakah. Tzedakah could mean righteousness, and we're going to talk about that. That tzedakah usually refers to charity. We call giving tzedakah. It's very, very interesting. Why do we call tzedakah tzedakah? Very unlike English, very unlike, that was good English. Unlike the English word, it's because to Jewish people, giving charity isn't a kindness, it's a righteousness. It's the right thing to do. So we call it tzedakah rather than chesed. Okay? So let's talk about this verse. However, before we talk about this verse, I want to take you on a little journey through history. Because this verse tells us very simply how to bring redemption. It tells us two things. Mishpat and tzedakah. We'll see later, it talks about two different concepts of exile, Zion and its inhabitants, its prisoners. So if it's so simple, why is it so difficult, right? We all know uh, Forrest Gump, right? Life's like a box of chocolates, and the saying goes that if life's a bowl of cherries, why am I in the pits? If it seems to be so easy, why is it taking 2,000 years? These are two easy things to do. So I want to read to you a little bit of history here. It was the year 1519 and Hernan Cortez with some 600 Spaniards, 16 or so horses and 11 boats had landed on a vast inland plateau called Mexico. The Spanish conquistador and his men were about to embark on a conquest of an empire that hoarded some of the world's greatest treasures. Gold, silver, and precious Aztec jewels were just some of what this treasure had to offer anyone who succeeded in their quest to obtain it. But with only 600 men, none of whom had encumbered themselves with protective armor, conquering an empire so extensive in its territories could only be undertaken by a man with a death wish. This daring undertaking was made even more insurmountable by the fact that for more than 600 years, conquerors with far more resources at their disposal who attempted to colonize the Yucatan Peninsula never succeeded. Hernan Cortez was well aware of this fact. And it was for this reason that he took a different approach when he landed on the land of the Mayans. Instead of charging through cities and forcing his men into immediate battle, Hernan Cortez stayed on the beach and awoke the souls of his men with melodious candice in the form of emblazoned speeches. His speeches were ingenuously designed to urge on the spirit of adventure, 
and invoked the thirst of lifetimes of fortune amongst his troops. His oration bore fruit for what was supposedly a military exploit now bore the, the appearance of an extravagant romance in the imaginations of Cortez's troops. But, ironically, only just three words which Cortez murmured that would change the history of the New World. As they marched inland to face their enemies, Cortez ordered three words, burn the boats. I'm going to continue with my little history lecture here for a moment. Though historians still dispute the veracity of Hernan Cortez burning his boats, it's doubtless that Cortez did destroy his boats. But he wasn't the first man to make such a bold strategic decision to ensure victory. About a thousand years before, the world's greatest empire builder, Alexander the Great, burned his boats upon arrival on the shores of Persia. By burning his boats, Alexander committed his men to victory over the Persians, who far outnumbered the Greeks in great numbers. Furthermore, Persia then also had the distinction of having the most powerful naval fleet in the world. Considering what Alexander was facing, the decision to destroy the Greeks' only hope of retreat was an extraordinary one. Nonetheless, it proved to be correct one. Okay? We're going to continue a little further with our history lecture. Our history books also boast of other fearsome Greek commanders who executed the same strategy to guarantee victory. Tariq el Tuerto otherwise known as Tariq ibn Ziyad, the general who conquered Hispania in 711, burnt his boats when fighting, with, when fighting the Spanders, Spaniards. As he too had a valid reason to do so, his army was outnumbered five to one. Why am I giving you this lecture history? Because the only thing that stops us from Project Redemption is that we're not willing to burn our boats. We have plan B, which means to get well engraved in America, great connections with Washington, beachfront homes. We have an escape plan. There are certain endeavors that demand of us an all out. Project Redemption is one of those endeavors. We can't do it half willingly. We can't do it if we know waiting on shore is an escape route. So what really makes Project Redemption so difficult is that we need a Hernan Cortez that can inspire us to a point where we're willing to burn the boats and know that there's only one way out now. Project Redemption. I want to share with you another little story. This is actually a study that has been made with frogs. Frogs are cold-blooded creatures. Now, this is what the study proved. If you put a frog into a pot of water on a low flame, the frog will continuously adapt his temperature to his surroundings until the frog will actually cook itself. However, if you take a frog and put it on a real big flame, it'll do the simplest thing it can do, hop right out of the pot. This power of adaptiveness is an amazing gift of survival. Our entire understanding of the evolution of mankind, and I'm not referring, God forbid, to the evolution, which is not Torah correct, but the evolution of mankind, this concept of the survival of the fittest, this whole notion was built upon this concept. We adapt, and through adapting, we get stronger, and we survive. However, I want to introduce to you two types of adaptions. One power to adapt comes from survival. One power of adapting is driven by complacency. The first one is an extremely healthy and important gift from God. The Jewish people would not have survived the entire exile if we didn't have the seichel, the brains, the power, the drive for survival, and therefore we would adapt, and we would adapt, and we would adapt. 
the entire oral law of the sages is actually built upon that adaption. Recognizing the new needs of their people and therefore putting up new fences, new borders to protect the people and their Torah. However, the power of adaption that's driven by complacency, that, in another word, is called suicide. We're the frog on a low flame. We're complacent. It's not about survival. It's about complacency to burn our boats. We have found this in the Jewish history over and over and over again. The greatest problem we have with exile is that most often it's a low flame. And therefore, we keep on adapting. No, it's okay, it's okay. So we'll have to not give this up, give that up. We'll make some changes. We won't live in the big cities. We'll live in the ghetto. And these adaptions, the frog changing its body heat, kept on happening. And when you live in that complacency, there is no way that you have the energy and the inner spirit to burn the boats. So therefore, Mashiach's not being here yet actually is only because we have never been willing to burn our boats. We've always looked for and another plan for survival reasons. But that's what happened. If I were to share with you, doing a review of the Rebbe Blessed Memory's life, what the Rebbe proclaimed as his job in 1951 on the 10th of Shvat in his first public Fabrengen as Rebbe. If I were to sum up what the Rebbe took upon himself as mission, it was to turn up the flame under the pot you find the Rebbe consistently telling us that this is not okay. We cannot continue to try to crawl under the radar screen, hoping just to be able to survive. Breaking that exile mold, that exile mold of adapting because of complacency, not believing that there's any other choice, always thinking that, listen, in worst terms, and worst case, we'll have another plan. We'll just, again, change our temperature. We will survive. That is why Project Redemption has never worked up to now. The Rebbe has completely want to attack that notion. The Rebbe brought Mashiach's concept of Mashiach in Jewish songs, all singers sing now songs of Mashiach, all of that was the Rebbe's goal to not let us be comfortable with complacency. So the plan of Project Redemption is very simple. We have two concepts of exile. We have two concepts of redemption. We have Zion. We have its prisoners. We have justice. And we have tzedakah, mitzvot. Now, the plan written already by Isaiah in the time of the destruction is very doable. It's very doable. What we need to embrace though is that our adaptiveness due to complacency cannot go on no longer. Now, I don't like discussing politics, but what's going on in Israel is not an issue of politics anymore. I'm going to suggest that what's been going on in Israel that's been leading up to this was the adaptiveness of the Israeli people. We've adapted to observe unacceptable conditions. That's the way it is. I was there in 1991 during Desert Storm. Things, kids were kept on Bailey running into bunkers. This is absurd. It's unacceptable for a nation to have its citizens and it's young children visiting during the day on a regular basis, dealing with the sirens, visiting the bomb shelters. But somehow, we were the frog in the pot. And for whatever reason, which is not for tonight's class, but for whatever reason, we've chosen to be complacent in the face of the world, in the face of the UN, in the face of the victimhood that's being presented by the other side, and now 
we're coming to a point where we have to burn our boats. In the Middle East, we have to burn our boats. Continuing this type of life has to become absolutely unacceptable. And once you burn the boats, then you're inspirited. You have that spirit to do what's got to be done. So let's get back to now our story. So I shared with you the secret of this Torah, which is discussed by so many commentaries in all walks of life, from Musa to Chassidus to everywhere. Everyone focuses on this verse. Sion So let's talk about this. We have two exiles here, right? We have Zion and we have Yoshveha. Zion is Zion. What was Isaiah referring to when he used the word Zion? We're talking about back in the day. When he said Zion, what did he mean? So we need to look at the interpretation of the word Zion. What does the word Zion actually mean, Zion? What does that word mean? So we actually have a verse in Ezekiel where they were told, they were commanded, and you shall build a Zion next to the bone or body part until it can be buried. It's part of a story that's going on in Ezekiel. So the word Zion means a sign. That's what the word Zion means. Aselecha Zionim means make for yourself signs, simanim. That's what the word Zion really means, a sign. So what is this talking about? When we talk about Zion, Zion being in exile. So we're going to move now from the macroscopic world to the microscopic world, make it personal, and then from there we'll be able to go back into the macroscopic world. In our own being, what is a sign? So in the teachings of Hasidus and Kabbalah, the definition of a sign actually is two important factors. Factor number one, it is not the essence of the thing, it's a sign of the thing. I'll explain that in a moment. The second factor is that it is a sign of the very essence of the thing. Okay? What does that mean? So let's talk about this for a moment. What is the definition of a soul? How is the soul defined? For those of you who looked in chapter 2 of Tanya, the opening sentence is, V'hanefesh hasheinit b'Yisrael hichelek elokai mimal mamash. The second soul of the Jew is truly a piece of God. Chelek elokai mimal mamash. I would like to put in italics, bold, and underlined three words of that sentence. One of the words I want to put is shenit, second. We refer to the godly soul as the second soul. The next word I'd like to underline in that sentence is chelek a part of, a portion of, not the real thing. And then the third thing I'd like to point out is the word mamash, which means truly, it is the real thing. So we're defining the Jewish soul, and in this definition, we already define the two factors of Zion, and we defined the factor of exile. Let's explain this, okay? The first thing we said is, that is a chelek alokai mimal mamash. What is the definition of the word mamash? It truly is the soul. It's not a reflection of God. It's not a third generation offshoot of God. It is truly a piece of God. Chelek elokai mimal mamash. It is a piece of the essence of God. On the other hand, there was a dichotomy right here. Because essence isn't made up of pieces. There's no complexity in essence. Essence is. So if you're talking about the essence of God, not the layers, not the different spirit, we're talking about the essence of God. If you're talking about the essence of God, you can't have a piece. Because a piece of essence is the entire essence. Okay? Not in my notes, but I'm just watching your faces. And I'm starting to get worried. <laughs> so, let me stick in the story, and later I'll add it onto my notes. The first Lubavitch Rebbe, 
the one who wrote the Tanya, he ended up bringing up his grandson because his daughter passed away, the Varolea, famous whole story, and she requested of him that I'm giving my life away for a certain cause, but I'm asking you to bring up my son. So most of the stories we have with the Tzemach Tzedek, the third Lubavitcher Rebbe, is not with his father. Some people don't even know who his father was. His name was Shalom Shachna. But it's always with the Alter Rebbe. So here's a story between the Alter Rebbe and his young grandson. The Alter Rebbe is sitting, and young Menachem Mendel, his grandson, is sitting on his lap. And the father of Shneer Zalman, the grandfather, the Alter Rebbe, starts asking his grandson a question. Where is Zaidi? So he grabs Zaidi's hand. He says, no, 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 that's not Zaidi, that's Zaidi's hand. So he grabs Zaidi's beard. No, 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 that's not Zaidi, that's Zaidi's beard. And wherever he tried to touch Zaidi and say, this is Zaidi, Zaidi would say, no, that's not Zaidi. That's the hand, that's the foot, that's the chest, that's the beard, that's the eye, that's the nose. So now Menachem Mendel, the future Semach Tzedek, is like, okay, what do we do here? Watch what he did. He got off his grandfather's lap and started walking to the door. So the Alter Rebbe immediately called him. Menachem He turned around and said, that was Zaidi. <laughs> the one that called me, that was Zaidi. And the Alter Rebbe smiled. Go back to what we were saying. When we talk about the essence of God, it's not that your soul is a piece of the foot of God, my soul is a piece of hair of God, and your soul is a piece of the eye of God. When you talk about the essence, who is Zaidi? Where is Zaidi? There is no complexity. It's a pure simplicity. So on one hand, we're saying that the soul, the godly soul, is a chelik elokai mimal mamash. It is truly a piece of God. The definition of the word truly is, like we just said, who is Zaidi? When you can tell me who is Zaidi, I'll tell you what essence is. So if that's what we're talking about, the soul, then how can the soul be a piece of that? So right here you have both components of a sion, a sign. On one hand, it is the sign of the very essence, the entirety, mamash, truly a piece of God. But on the other hand, it's only a chelik, a piece. That's the interesting paradox of the essence of the soul within every Jew. So we explained the two components of the sign of Zion. We now know that when Jeremiah said the word Zion, as far as the Hasidus explains this on the microscopic level, we're talking about the soul of a Jew needs to be redeemed. It's in exile. Now, what is the definition of exile? How can a piece of God be in exile? So let's go back to the first word. Remember, I underlined three words for you. First one I underlined is Vanefesh Hashenit, the second soul. So how does it work? Let me share with you a very interesting teaching of our sages. The animalistic soul happens the minute the doctor patches the tush. Right there, the baby's crying, it's alive. It has an animalistic soul. It eats, it drinks, and everything else that a baby does. When does the godly soul come in? So we talk about stages. The woman is born with a certain stage. The boy has to wait eight days for the circumcision. And then we have the three-year marker when the boy cuts the hair. But then when does the soul truly, completely enter into the body? It's at bar or bat mitzvah. That's when you become a man. That's when you have the total power of your godly soul is within you. So the Talmud says like this, <laughs> that the animalistic soul turns around to the godly soul and says, let me teach you a law in the Torah. What's the law? Very simple law. What happens if, let's just pick anyone over here. I take for Mary a loan for $1,000. I took for Mary a loan on what? The 24th of June. And then life wasn't that great, so I went over to my other friend, Senor Nitanel, and I took a second loan. Okay? Another $1,000. Now I only have $1,000 to pay back. But you know what? Mary lives in Weston. I don't see her so often. Him I have to face every week. Let me pay him first. The law says no. Because Mary comes and says two simple words. Shtori akadmech. My contract is before yours. The Yetzirah, the animalistic soul, tells the godly soul, Boychik, 
I was here a resident 13 years before you showed up. So this human being owes me his submissiveness long before he owes it to you. And thus the Alter Rebbe refers to the soul, the nefesh hashenit, the second soul. To watch the godly soul in a human being be considered secondary to the animalistic soul and the egocentric pursuits of life, that's called exile. And thus the prophet Isaiah says that Zion needs to be redeemed because the godly soul is in exile. Now, what is the difference between a prisoner and exile? What is the difference? So we say that Yoshveha, its inhabitants that became prisoners, that has to go through tzedakah. What's the difference between a prisoner and being in exile? And the answer is that by definition, a prisoner means that you are not where you belong and not free to do the things you need to do. You cannot say on the godly soul, a piece of God, that it is not where it belongs. Because the godly soul can never become impure. Regardless of what sin we will ever do, the Zion within us will never become impure. So therefore, he is not a prisoner, but he is in exile. The human paradigm that the godly soul is secondary to his egocentric, animalistic soul is exile. But the godly soul cannot be a prisoner. God cannot be a prisoner. God is everywhere and everywhere is God. So thus a piece of God cannot be a prisoner, but it could be in exile. When we watch our court systems and our school systems throwing God out, that doesn't mean God's a prisoner, but it does mean that God's in exile. If our education system does not have at its foundation teaching children the ever-watchful eye and the ever-watchful ear, so God's in exile. But he's not a prisoner. Zion can never be a prisoner, but it could be secondary, and thus it could be an exile. Let's introduce who is the prisoner. Who is the inhabitants of Zion which is taken prisoner? So the holy books teach us that we're talking about the inhabitants of the godly soul, which is what? Three garments. Thought, speech, and action. The thought, speech, and action of a person can absolutely become impure and can be taken prisoner. That is the second part of Isaiah's verse. So we have the soul, which is just an exile, and we have the prisoner. The prisoner is the thought, speech, and action of the person. That can be taken into prison and like very simple. I mean, when we talk about in the world of Hasidus, when we talk about it being taken prisoner, it doesn't mean sins. It just means very simple. If everyone in this room, including myself, spends most of our day thinking about how we make money, that means our thought system is in prison. Because instead of thinking about we're Jewish and what we have to do, of course we have to make money. But if all I can think about 24-7 and while I'm sitting here in a Torah class, my mind is trying to remember all the things I was supposed to do today in the office that I didn't do, then our thought system is in prison. The same thing with our speech system. It's in prison. But we cannot control ourselves from gossiping because I want to be friends with him. And now him is mad at him, him. So if I tell him, gossip about him, him, we'll be friends. That's exile. That is what exile is all about. Our speech is actually taken as prisoner, and so too with our actions. So we have Zion, we have the prisoners. Zion is the godly soul, the peace of God, the truly peace of God. That is an exile because we see it as secondary. And then we have the prisoners, our thought, speech, and action, which actually embody themselves within impurity. Now let's talk about the two redemptions. What are the two redemptions here on the table? We have Mishpat and we have Tzedakah. What is Mishpat? Mishpat means justice. So we actually learn out of a very interesting person in the history. He was a convert, one of the most famous converts that ever lived. His name was Unculus. 
He was actually a nephew of a very horrible Roman emperor. Now this Unculus, he lived I think in, in uh, BC 20, BCE, 21 to 125 he lived from there. So what happened was he lived in, the t in those terrible times, he converted, and he wrote a masterpiece called Targum Unculus. He translated the entire Torah into Aramaic. And till this very day, when we look for the definition of a word with its halachic ramifications, the legal ramifications, we turn to Mr. Unculus. So Unculus defines the word mishpat, not in this verse, in a different verse, where it says mishpat arishon. He defines the word mishpat to mean Torah. Because studying Torah is where we learn the justice of God. So the action of mishpat is actually the studying of Torah. This doesn't refer just to judges that do give justice. We're talking about studying the laws of justice, God's definition of justice. So studying Torah is the action of mishpat. Now, why is it that Torah study can only help Zion and not the prisoners? Listen to what Isaiah said. He was very particular. Zion b'mishpat tipadeh. Zion will be redeemed through Torah study. Not the prisoners. For the prisoners, we've got to do another thing. Why? What's specific? What's the connection between Torah study and Zion? And then we have the righteousness, the tzedakah, and the garments, the prisoners. So here's an interesting concept. Both the Torah and the Zion, part of our soul, the godly soul, the peace of God, they both share a very important common factor. The verse tells us, Halo kod esh. Jeremiah says, in the name of God, Is not my words like fire, says the Lord. That's what the Pasuk says. Halo kod esh. The words of Torah is like fire. Comes along the Talmud in Tractic Brachot, the first Tractic, and it actually learns out something amazing from this. It learns out a law. The question is, is someone who's impure, impure can be very simple. A person went to a funeral, touched the body, became impure. If someone's impure, can they study the holy words of Torah? Or they are not allowed to. How can an impure person say the holy words of Torah? So the Talmud learns out like this. God compared the words of Torah to fire. Just like according to Jewish law, fire can never become impure. This can become impure. Everything can become impure. Fire, a flame, can never become impure. So too the words of Torah can never become impure. And thus the ruling is that someone who is impure is allowed to study the words of Torah because he is not, God forbid, profaning and making the words of Torah impure. Let's go back to what we said before. The godly soul can never become impure. Even if the person to which that soul belongs is right this second sinning, while he is sinning in impurity with his thoughts, speech, and actions, the essence of the soul, the words of our sages say, ba'amna ito. It was an absolute, complete faith and amuna. It does not get in touch with sin. It's in exile, but it's not in prison. Thus, we now see that the words of Torah carry the exact same factor as Zion, the soul. They are both untouchable by impurity. The only thing they can experience is exile by being looked at as secondary. Right? Let me give you an, a very interesting example. So you have a, ra a rabbi that also has a degree in law. And the people, really? You have a degree in law? <laughs> Guy spent 42 years in the yeshiva. <laughs> that's a, you really? You're a lawyer? <laughs> so that's an exile. The Torah is secondary. That is exile, but it doesn't make the Torah impure. Thus, the Torah and the soul carry the exact same factors. That's why studying of Torah is the perfect redemption for the soul. This is eternally pure. This is eternally pure. 
this can be an exile, this can be an exile. By studying Torah, we're taking the Torah out of exile, and through that, our personal Zion is taken out of exile. Tion the Mishpat Tipade. Let me tell you another interesting factor. Torah, when you study Torah, no matter how hard you're working on your human mind to study it, nevertheless, the words of Torah are always whose words? Hashem's. That is why in Chesidish Yeshivas, you'll always hear, before they start learning the Gemara, they say a sentence in Yiddish. What does that mean? Says the Holy Gemara. Why is it a Holy Gemara? We're about to learn what Rabbi Akiva said. Rabbi Akiva was a very special man, but holy is God. Because ultimately speaking, the words of Torah that Rabbi Akiva studied, following the rules that Moses brought down from Mount Sinai, is not his words, it's God's words. And if it was his words, we wouldn't be learning it. He's a great man. We'd be doing it on our extra time. But if his words aren't God's words, then they're not Torah. If they're not Torah, then not during yeshiva time. That's what you do on vacation. So the mere fact that we do that is because regardless of who we are, when we study Torah, it is the words of God, it's the words of Torah, not my words. Which means that this process of project redemption is not from below above, it's from above below. To quote the verse, and he places his words upon my tongue. So that's why when it comes to Zion, spiritual concept, use spiritual concept from above, from above, untouchable and untouchable, a perfect match. Studying Torah is the way to redeem the Zion within you. Not so with thought, speech, and action. Not so with the prisoners. Because the prisoners have manifested themselves within the physicality. This is not just an exile. I have turned my thought process into a prisoner. My speech is imprisoned. I'm always talking about myself, my, my, e my egocentric needs. That means that my speech process is imprisoned. My thought process is always about me on the pity pot. That means that my thought process is imprisoned. My actions are the actions of victimhood. That means that my actions are imprisoned. They're not in exile. They actually manifested themselves within prison. They are prisoners. So to study Torah isn't going to work. We need something that's going to get into the physical, right? Let's just think about this. When we have to release POWs, we don't do it by sitting in Washington. We've got to send a helicopter into enemy, to enemy territory, go down there, grab the prisoners, put them in the helicopter, and take them out. Just from satellites above, seeing things isn't enough. Torah study is that type of satellite from above, the Word of God. Mitzvot. What's the power of mitzvot? All mitzvot have to be done physically. Do you know that there are holy books that they label your body, the organs, the limbs, not by the name of the limb, but by the mitzvah that it does. For example, the Talmud calls the hand Yad Hanotenet Staka, the hand that gives charity. So from a biblical point of view, what is the hand? Hand is a charity giver. Feet that go to class, that go to shul. So when we talk about the relationship between doing mitzvahs, that's not the relationship of the soul. That's the relationship of the thought, speech, and action process as they manifest themselves in the physical body. Those are the amazing soldiers that go into enemy territory, grab back the prisoners of war. So if physicality is the prison, by doing a mitzvah, by taking food, and instead of just salivating, you make a blessing, you share with someone, you invite someone to your Shabbos table, by taking your paycheck and taking a little piece of it and putting it into tzedakah, by doing these physical things, by putting a mezuzah onto your door, what have you done? You have transformed the physical 
You're dealing with the prisoners. You're bringing back the prisoners of war. You're going into the enemy territory and creating transformation. So now instead of being stuck within the egocentric, what's happening now? I'm using those very same environments that I used only for selfish purposes and I'm doing holy things, divinity. So my thought process is how can I help someone else? My speech process is instead of that one shop word that'll make that person turn purple, how about calling up the phone and saying, hey, I noticed today in class you weren't looking so great. Everything okay? The transformation. That's what mitzvot is all about. When you do these physical mitzvot, you're bringing back the prisoners. Thus, Isaiah says, very simple, project redemption. The Zion of your soul, which is never imprisoned. Remember that sentence. A prince in prison. Because even when you're in prison, you're a prince. Because Zion is not in prison. What did the previous rabbis say when they arrested him in Russia? They can take our bodies into exile. They can't take our souls into exile. It just doesn't work. A soul is not a prisoner. But it could be feeling a little bit slighted. It could be the second soul. So study Torah. Study Torah, and what does that do? The flame touches the flame, and all of a sudden in your own personal life, it's not a secondary soul. Because I'm not studying Torah the way I'm studying quantum physics. I'm studying Torah because I'm reading about myself. This is my life. I am a Jew, and the Torah defines what a Jew is. So all of a sudden, it's not an exile. Then you have the second part, the thought, speech, and action, which was sunken into the prisons. That we got to go in there, take him out. That's done through mitzvot. Mitzvot does not come from above below. It comes from below above. I grab a piece of the physical world, and I elevate it to God. I transform it, and I elevate it to God. In closing, what do I want to share with you in closing? I'd like to give you a gift. And what I'd like to do here is I'd like to make redemption simplified. Because most of us sit here, and I guess I'm not no Hernan Cortez, because I didn't see anyone yet burn their boats. But we think about redemption as, yeah, okay, Rabbi, it's amazing. And you keep it up, Rabbi. <laughs> I love your classes. You talk about Mashiach, and it's, it's okay. See you next week in North Miami, not Jerusalem. Because really our mind, we really don't, we think that bringing the redemption is such a huge, impossible, larger-than-life concept. So therefore, for this class to have any meaning to you and me, I'm no different. I used to sit by the Rebbe's Fabrengans and hear the Rebbe before Mincha, we're going to Mashiach, and I used to say, wow, the Rebbe really believes. <laughs> he really believes. <laughs> but I think we're going to be definitely Mincha right here in Crown Heights. But the Rebbe spoke differently. That's just a fact. The Rebbe lived with that. And to me, it was just, Rebbe, what are you saying? Yeah, we're all going to do tshuva. Just like that, right? <laughs> we're just going to do tshuva. So we need to understand what it means. Let's talk about redemption simplified and not have this to be an abstract, wishful thinking class. When we talk about redeeming Zion with Torah study, we are not asking from anyone in this room to quit their jobs and go to yeshiva. That's not what we're asking. When we talk about doing mitzvot, we didn't just ask for everyone in this room to change their lifestyle from the way they dress, the way they eat, what they travel, how they do, and everything, and become Shomer Torah mitzvot. That's not what we spoke about tonight. That's not what Isaiah is talking about. Please, people, pay attention. Hernan Cortez did not say burn your lifestyles. He said burn your escape route. That's a very different demand. Redemption is something that's going to take absolute conviction. That is true. Burn your boats. You can't keep one, one, door in the, one foot in the door of assimilation just in case. You can't do that. You got to take your foot out of the door, shut the door, assimilation's out of the question, bingo. That's it. But what we are asking is that this absoluteness should manifest itself in one simple mitzvah. Now, I'm going to stare you all in the eyes and tell you there's not a Jew in this room who can tell me that it's too difficult to do one mitzvah a day. There's no one in this room that can tell me that. 
There's no one in this room who can tell me that it's just impossible in my busy lifestyle to study Torah at a set time once a week. It's just not true. And if you tell that to yourself, you're lying. It's just that simple. So when we talk about project redemption, we're talking about burning your boats. That means, very simply, I am going to study Torah once a week. If you come here, I love you. If you don't come here, I half love you. But you can go onto the internet and you can study Torah in your house. There's no one here that can tell me, I'm sorry, I have seven times 24, and if I just had one more hour, I would study Torah. So what we are asking is burn your boats. It became an impossibility for me not to study God's Torah once a week. That's all. Just set it in stone. That's what Isaiah is saying. What about a mitzvah? Who in this room can take upon himself one mitzvah a day? Just very simple. It could be as simple as wake up in the morning, put your hands together like this, bow your head, and say the moda'ani. There you go. That was a mitzvah. How about putting a, a pushka in your kitchen? Everyone always has that annoying loose change in their pocket. One coin a day. What I would suggest you to do is have next to the pushka a glass so you can put your coins in it. And like this, you just have it there. Just take out every day one coin. It's that simple. What we need to do is have the absolute conviction that there's no other choice. But we're not asking for a lifestyle change. That's not what we're asking. Mashiach will be brought, according to the Rambam, by one action. The Rambam says that the scale is even. One action will tip the scale. It doesn't say that if you, you completely leave Florida, give up your job, move into Kfar Chabad, take out a Gemara, then Mashiach's going to come. That's not what it says. The Rambam says one action. It may be your action. It may be my action. But one thing we do know about that action it's got to be a burn-the-boat paradigm. We've got to completely accept that that's it. I took it upon myself tonight, in Shul, Sunday, Rosh Chodesh Av, in the year 5774, that once a week I'm going to learn, by hook or by crook. And if I miss it, I'm going to sit there with my eyes full and go sleep, but it, I'm going to listen to that audio, whatever it's going to be. I'm going to read that thing. Project Redemption. It's really simple. People, thank you.